This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, February 16, 2010. I'm Caleb Brown. The triumph over scarcity has not spread everywhere. Haiti stands as a stark example of how poverty can turn a devastating natural disaster into a humanitarian tragedy that goes on and on. In Arnold Kling's new co-authored book, From Poverty to Prosperity, the age-old questions of why some countries are rich and others poor often boils down to how easily ideas can move, be adopted, be abandoned, and how easily markets, where they exist, are allowed to adapt. Well, I guess I have kind of three remarks on Haiti, although I, I want to say that they applied to poor countries in general. I think the, the result of the aftermath of Haiti has been to highlight to the American people that there are really very poor countries and that there's a very big difference between a very poor country and the United States. And as you indicated, we think that the sources of poverty are more in intangible factors than intangible factors. So the traditional economic factors are things like labor, land, and capital, things that you can count and touch and so on. And yet, if we look at the for the explanation of differences across countries, it's typically intangible factors. And if you uh, go to a poor country, my prediction is you will find a history of predatory government and cultural resistance to learning. And those are both intangible factors. You would, you we're used to a government that where the civil servants, you know, take professional pride in doing their jobs. Uh, in a poor country, it's more likely that you'll find civil servants who take their positions as opportunities to prey on people, to require bribes and so forth. So that we take it for granted that ordinary citizens can establish and maintain ownership of businesses and property. But in poor countries, those processes are very difficult. They may be non-existent, and the government may be working as much against them as with them. You also point out in your book that when capitalism comes to countries that are resistant to change, there can be a lot of violent upheaval. So getting from there to here seems like a a delicate and difficult thing. Right. That brings up the second remark I would make, which is that you would think, well, if the problem is, you know, ineffective government and cultural resistance, let's go in and impose our form of government and our culture. And uh, but it turns out that that's actually quite difficult to do, that uh, however much we might see a country as failing in these in its institutions, the institutions are actually deeply embedded in society, and it's very hard to work against them. And even in this desperate relief situation, people are finding that working with local institutions and local culture is easier than trying to bypass it. Um, and then my final remark on the situation is that uh, we've found in our book that uh, if you have two countries next to each other and one of them has very low productivity and one has very high productivity, the uh, raising the productivity of the low productivity workers seems to go most quickly when they move to the high productivity country than when you attempt to transplant the institutions of the high productivity country to the low productivity country. So competition among governments or competition among the institutions that are welcomed by those governments relatively? Well, there's an advanced thought. That's something that uh, Paul Romer, who's one of the people we interviewed in our book, has gone on to pursue uh, the notion of you know, creating 
completely new cities that people could migrate to, and these cities would start out with better institutions. Uh, I'm not sure that that's an idea that will work, but it's interesting. We take for granted in this country, I think, a lot of innovation that simply doesn't have to happen here. It does happen here. Medical U.S. leads the world in, in medical innovation and other kinds of uh, innovation, but that certainly doesn't have to continue to be the case. One of the things that you talked about uh, in your book was how much energy it takes to create a lumen that is an hour of, of light of, of some, some quality and how that has trended over time. Could you talk about that? Well, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it's uh, the original studies by William Nordhaus, and he just went back through time and looked at the, uh, you know, the cost of creating light and how dramatically it's fallen. And the reason he did that is that light has been valuable you know, throughout history, and so it, uh, it's a way of looking at, in some sense, if you think of that as a proxy for the cost of living, then the cost of living has just plummeted uh, throughout history. And the benefits of that innovation, because it is an idea rather than um, some specific piece of, of capital, that those, those benefits continue, can, can spread anywhere. If you just think that growth is determined by capital, then they're bound to be diminishing returns because it just gets more and more expensive to add to capital. But if you think of growth as determined by ideas, since uh, ideas are not scarce in that sense, uh, you can have ever-increasing growth, which, uh, which we have seen. How do you think about uh, market effectiveness and market failure? The welfare economists that uh, came to prominence in the early 20th century uh, saw market failure everywhere. And uh, so how do you think about that? Well, by their definition, there is market failure everywhere because uh, by their definition, they're looking at static efficiency. Do markets optimally allocate resources given the state of knowledge? But we think instead about adaptive efficiency. How well do these innovations come into a market? So let's take, uh, you know, we've had the Internet and the World Wide Web now for about 15 years. And in the 15 years since the World Wide Web came out, Stock brokerage has completely changed. There are newer, better, cheaper ways of buying stocks than there were 15 years ago, and that would be a sign of adaptive efficiency. Whereas real estate brokerage hasn't changed much at all. There's still the real estate agent sitting in the house collecting a fixed commission. And so that would suggest a market failure by this adaptive efficiency measure. Uh, another example comparison would be music distribution versus academic publishing. Music distribution has been very much disrupted. You know, we've got iTunes now, very different model than the CDs that existed 15 years ago. And my guess is that we're just in the middle of that disruption. Academic publishing works pretty much the same way it did 15 years ago, which is ironic since the World Wide Web was created by Tim Berners-Lee not to be a platform for Facebook or Twitter, but to be a platform for academic communication. And yet academic journals look like they did 15 years ago, which suggests to me market failure uh, as measured by dynamic efficiency. So uh, unlike static efficiency, where you see market failure everywhere and everywhere, consequently, government intervention represents an opportunity, with adaptive market efficiency, the fear is that government will always side with incumbents against the, the upstarts that are trying to bring new products and better processes into the market. 
And so government intervention tends to represent a threat everywhere rather than an opportunity everywhere. Arnold Kling is co-author of the new book, From Poverty to Prosperity. You can watch or listen to the forum for the book at cato.org.